Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Elizabeth Klein, a New York-based journalist and expert in sustainability, consumer culture and labor rights in the fashion industry, and the author of two critically acclaimed books, Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion, and The Conscious Closet, The Revolutionary Guide to Looking Good While Doing Good. Hi. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Elizabeth. Um, And so we're going to tackle another important but often confusing topic, I think, uh, sustainability. Mm. And we're going to discuss what it actually means uh, bust some myths surrounding it, challenge some preconceived notions, and look at the role that n- not only the producers, but the consumers play when it comes to sustainability, which I think is maybe perhaps the most underplayed part here. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start off with some really scary stats. <laughs> Let's uh, do it. Between, and this is from Overdressed, the first one. Not all of them, but the first one. So between 1991 and 2011, Americans doubled the number of items of clothing they purchased per year. Mm-hmm. And textile waste has increased by 40% since 1999. Uh, on top of which, the since 1987, uh, the percentage of... M- budget we spend on clothes went down from 5% to 2%. So we're buying way more and spending way less. Right. Um, And the average American seems to be buying 68 garments a year while throwing away 68 pounds of textile a year. Now that's textile, not just clothes. In 2015, Americans sent 10.5 billion tons of clothing to landfills. This is my favorite. One Salvation Army in New York, One Salvation Army Center in New York creates five tons of textile waste every day. Mm-hmm. Um, 87% of fabric used f- for clothing ends up in, incinerated or in a landfill. I am ready for that Mars mission. We need to leave this planet. <laughs> what is going on, Elizabeth? I mean, you just summed up the uh, the whole kind of fast fashion system. You know, it's it's built on overproduction. Um, I, you know, I don't think that supply meets demand, and over time, it's changed consumer behavior. Um, And it's incredibly, not just wasteful, I think that waste is something that we find compelling because we can see it, um, because clothing is not, for the most part, manufactured in the United States, but it requires a tremendous amount of natural resources, energy, water to make all of that stuff. Um, And... You know, in in the years since since Overdressed came out, I don't really see a lot of um, great solutions to these issues. Like for the most part, other than the pandemic completely crushing 
demand for apparel, the apparel industry just grows every year and demand for raw materials grows every year and waste grows every year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to offer some solutions in the end, but not to the producers, uh, yeah. but to the consumers. I hope they follow. Um, <laughs> but first, I think we need to decide, we need to define what sustainability is because it's become a catch-all term for something positive. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, I feel like a lot of people who bandsy it about don't really know what exactly it means. And one of my pet peeves when it comes to fashion in general yeah. is that we uh, no longer have the definition of terms, clear definition of terms. So we might be speaking about the same you know, different things by calling it by the same name and vice versa. Yeah. So let's define, you know, what is sustainability? What are its components? I think that that is probably not a, a question that can be answered. Um, that's why sustainability is so problematic because it doesn't have a clear definition. And, you know, some of the research I've been doing recently into the history of sustainability, to my understanding, the term itself um, was introduced by the timber industry. Um, And they were arguing that they could efficiently manage deforestation. So I think that that's really interesting that it um, started as a kind of corporate marketing that, you know, wanting to convince people that um, big business could responsibly manage natural resources. And all of these decades later, I can't remember off the top of my head when when that would have been, but I want to say in the 1800s, um, you still have people arguing over whether Ultimately, what we want is for big businesses to be more efficient um, because that that is how most big business defines sustainability is like doing more with less, you know, making more crap using less water, um, fewer fossil fossil fuels and what have you. Um, what do you think sustainability is? <laughs> yeah, well, to me, I think there are a couple of aspects that, uh, um, you know, that that comprise the word. Uh, yeah. And I think one is the behavior of the producers and the other one is behavior of the consumers. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, because, uh, you know, and one is like, you know, what it's made, how it's made, where it's made. Yeah. And, uh so on one hand, we're talking about sus- sustainable materials. To me, the word sustainable means uh, you can kind of replace the resources mm-hmm. that you have spent on making something. So you're not constantly depleting the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we can just throw that definition out the window right away, right? Because that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, um, but... Yeah, I feel so. I think like part of it is uh, the materials, uh, you know, what materials are we using to make the clothes? Um, How are the clothes constructed and who makes them? Mm -hmm. So then there is, of course, a huge ethical component, uh, you know, that 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 comes to 
resources, but that also comes to people. You know, where are your clothes made? Right. By whom? Right. Um, and, you know, and that to me sort of like comprises, you know, the whole thing. And mm-hmm. I guess it still sounds a little bit nebulous, but I think once we break it down into these component, components, it becomes a bit more manageable to use. And what's most important to me, it becomes more manageable to hold companies to account Mm -hmm. and also hold ourselves to account because we're going to get to my favorite part of this podcast, which is (laughs) holding a mirror up to the consumers (laughs) and questioning their habits. Mm. And I'm not saying it's all their fault, but we'll get to that. So, you know, I guess I would want to start, uh, w- you know, w- with 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 what with the what and the how, yeah. you know. And as far as fabrics go, like you know, what in your research have you found the most sustainable fabrics to wear? Even isn't is there even such a thing? I think that that is, that's such a great question. Um, I, in my research, what I found was that there are so many different, as you know, steps to producing a textile. Um, so, um, it's a, actually a very complex, complicated thing to answer because in the cotton industry, just for example, um, you can have the impact on the farm. And then you can have the impact in the textile mill, and then you can have the impact that happens in the cut and sew factory. Um, and the same is true for polyester. You know, it all starts in a, a, a chemical refinery, but then that polyester then has to be spun and finished into fabric. Um, and one thing that I, I think is really interesting, um, and I dug into a little bit in the conscious closet, is that oftentimes there's a bigger difference in the environmental impact of fiber between two factories than there is between like cotton and polyester. So like hmm. sometimes it's, it's the way something is manufactured um, in the industrial process that makes a bigger difference than the actual, like it's not as, it's not as easy as saying like, Cotton is always better than polyester, for example. Right. And they all have, because they're, they're all, all materials for the most part are produced in these huge industrial systems. They have really similar environmental impacts. Um, like polyester, uh, you know, is a byproduct of the fossil fuel industry. And one of the reasons why cotton is so bad for the environment is because it is so chemically intensive. So they're kind of, there's a lot of like overlap in the way they harm the environment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like there is some conflation that goes on between sort of, uh, you know, uh, ethical treat, say like ethical treatment of animals mm-hmm. and the materials that come with it. Because right. I would argue that, and, and there is an argument to be made that, for example, leather is actually one of the most sustainable materials because... Mm-hmm. A lot of it is a byproduct of the meat industry, which is, you know, absolutely a questionable practice in itself. Mm-hmm. However, it's already there. Right. So, you know, between the choice of 
throwing that leather out and or using it mm-hmm. uh, since it's a byproduct. And one statistic I had, and I had someone dispute that statistic, so I don't know how reliable it is, but I read it in The Economist, that uh, only 10% of an animal's value goes to leather and 80% is meat and 10% is mm-hmm. We probably don't want to talk about. (laughs) 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 Um, And so, yeah, it's, I think you're absolutely right. I thought the same thing. It's hard to say whether one material is more ethical Mm -hmm. than the other material. Well, Uh, the other thing you have to factor in is the, the way that the way the consumer is using something because um, leather does have a higher like if you just were looking at it in a really scientific way and looked at the carbon and chemical impact of making a leather shoe, it's quite high. So mm-hmm. maybe that wouldn't be the most, that wouldn't be the ideal material to use in a pair of sneakers that can't be resold and you're going to throw out at the end of a season. Right. I'm just making the the opposite argument, yeah. right? Like, um, and until we have better materials, someone could, could make the argument that maybe plastic would be more appropriate in mm. a, um, a shoe that you were only going to wear for a season. But if you're talking about something like airplane seats or car interior, car interiors, like things that last for a really long time, yeah. leather, I mean, come on, a handbag, yeah. a jacket, um, dress shoes that you can have resold, it lasts, it lasts and it also ages really well. Whereas like, as you know, all, all too well, it's like plastic breaks. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't break in, it breaks. Yeah. 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 And the, the leather byproduct conversation though is very contested. And I, I personally don't know what the right answer is because I, when I interview people in the leather industry, that they, they all say like, you know, you're what I you're hearing just propaganda from animal rights activists and leather is absolutely a byproduct. But then I hear the other other side of the argument, too. So mm. I don't I don't know. Yeah. What's the other side of the argument that um, that leather is a huge and powerful industry that creates helps kind of sustain the beef industry and keeps it going. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, I want to move on to probably one of my favorite moments in any podcast, which is myth busting. And I I want to start with greenwashing. I want to start with, um, what to me is a huge problem, you know, uh, corporations hijacking the sustainability narrative and using it. Uh, to either defend their practices or hide them away or sort of like, you know, sprinkle some (laughs) ethics on top of what they're doing, like tinsel on a Christmas tree and say, look, aren't we nice? Tinsel Um, on a Christmas tree. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Some tinsel on a Christmas tree. Um, So, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm a... (laughs) <laughs> you'll think I, you'll think this is funny. I'm actually working on a story for Patagonia about greenwashing. So I'm like, how do I, 
how do I get myself? I, it's, I mean, yeah, this goes back to the, what we were saying in the very beginning of the podcast is the concept of sustainability is very slippery to begin with. So that's why when corporations do anything related to environmentalism, it feels, uh, uh, threatening to to anyone to anyone that actually cares about human rights and the environment like really truly living within the boundaries of this planet it can just feel very unsettling because you know ultimately that they're that they're either over celebrating really small initiatives um, mm-hmm. or there's just simply not enough information for you to know if what right. they're doing is making a difference like, where's the benchmark? What, where, what were they doing before? How, how would we ever make a comparison to know if, if what, what they've rolled out is an improvement? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and also some of these companies, I remember being way back when on a panel, um, I wasn't on the panel. I was, I was watching a panel at Parsons Mm -hmm. where it was, uh, what is the name of her sustainability expert? Linda Greer, I believe. Yeah. Linda Greer. Total badass. Uh, and with, you know, uh, Mr. Pinot, who is the head of caring, mm-hmm. uh, that owns Gucci, Balenciaga, Saint Laurent, and all that. And it was hosted by Parsons. And um, she was... At the time, and, you know, she's she's a sustainability expert and she's constantly quoted everywhere. But she was at the time consulting for H&M. Mm-hmm. And she was touting all the things that H&M was doing, you know, like they're the biggest uh, consumer of organic cotton mm-hmm. and so on and so on. And I was just sitting there and thinking how disingenuous the whole thing sounded. And I said to myself, and I didn't get to ask the questions because they were uh, very Mm -hmm. quick uh, off the stage. Uh, (laughs) But I thought, you know, for H&M to become green, they have to shut down the company, (laughs) restructure the entire way they're doing business. Mm -hmm. And then you can, can claim any kind of sustainability credit. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I was like, it's just bullshit. Yeah. And unfortunately, for decades, um, a lot, a, a, a large portion of the environmental movement has been in the pocket of big corporations. Um, so when you say something like H&M is the largest sourcer of organic cotton, that's because they're what, what the fifth or sixth largest clothing retailer. Like what that's, you're not saying anything when you say that, that they, of course they source the most because they're freaking enormous and they make like over a billion units of clothing per year. Um, and, uh, and it's also troubling that, these companies, they see sustainability as a growth strategy at this point because it allows them to save money, to be, to be honest. Like when they go into a factory and they figure out ways to save natural resources, um, it's cheaper for them. 
And when things become cheaper, that allows them to sell more and accelerate production. So I think to your point and what you're kind of hinting at is that fast fashion is growing so fast and the fashion industry grows so fast that all of these investments into sustainability um, are completely outstripped by the, the amount of growth we see in the industry every year. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Were well, you jumping ahead a little bit oh, where I want to go? <laughs> no, no, no. But it's incredibly important topic. Just hold that thought. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like, you know, greenwashing happens everywhere, at, you know, in all strata. I don't mm-hmm. think it's just fast fashion. No. Fast fashion yeah. certainly is the main culprit. But I feel like it happens, you know, in designer fashion and luxury fashion. And it's going to keep getting worse because corporations know that especially young consumers really, really care about the environment. They're demanding sustainable products. And um, again, what I was saying is that big companies see it as strategic to be just green enough to grow more. Um, So unlike raising wages, for example, or changing their business model to make less, um, sustainability, sustainability, corporate sustainability can save the money, which is why they're doing it. Yeah. And on the flip side, then what the hell, let's get into it for a little bit. We will, we'll, we will also pick up later. Okay. It's uh, sustainability. I feel like for a lot of companies has become and for the media industry that supports it, has become simply just another selling point. Yeah. So you can sell this over here. You can sell this over here. Mm-hmm. And to me, it comes from the same mentality we've developed under the late capitalist system that we can just like solve all our problems with just buying the right thing. Yeah. Which to me is just, Yeah. Yeah. I am. I am so there with you on that. Um, Yeah, there, there's this, I I think like narrative that shopping the right way is the only kind of power that we hold when um, I think in a lot of cases it ends up propping up corporate power, especially now that, you know, in the eight years that since Overdress came out, we, we have seen H&M, they all, all of the brands have a conscious option. So, yeah. but who would argue that we've succeeded, that the ethical and sustainable fashion movement has succeeded? It feels like we've lost, feels like we are losing. I, 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 I do... Yeah, on, on the other on, on the one hand, I feel like yes, like young consumers talk about it, mm-hmm. but I don't know if they're actually following through with their purchasing decisions. Because well, yeah. I mean, prior, it the thing is it's getting so muddled because just to give an example, Primark today, after we uh, I've been organizing, helping organize the pay up campaign. So we've been trying to get Primark to pay for their canceled orders since the beginning of the pandemic. And they finally agreed there was like a part of their business or orders that they, I think were um, just asking to pay 
late on. And we were like, no, you have to pay on time to be on the like good side of the tracker. And we can talk more about the campaign, but they finally agreed and got moved over to the good side the same day that they launched, which is today, the day that we're talking a sustainable fashion collection of recycled clothing, sustainable cotton, whatever the hell that means. And, <laughs> um, uh, there was some, there's some other aspect of the initiative. Um, so these types of options are going to become increasingly popular. So when you say you, you're not sure, you're not necessarily seeing you young consumers kind of put their money where their mouth is. I think that the options to shop sustainably at a fast fashion store are growing. Yeah. It's just, seem, you know, it seems to me that, uh, here's what I've been thinking, uh, or what I think when I, uh, feel more hopeful, okay. I think, well, uh, we've through, you know, uh, campaigns of good journalistic work and public announcements and all that, like we've gotten people off cigarettes. So there was one bad habit we kicked, mm-hmm. uh, fast food with moderate success. I think, well, we can do this. Mm-hmm. We can do this. We, we we can show people that shopping at fast fashion clothes is actually, you know, it's killing the environment. It's not good for the planet. It's doing incredible damage to uh, labor force in third world country uh, mm-hmm. because they're underpaid and overworked and sometimes literally die, as we know, mm-hmm. uh, working just so you can have your $5 t-shirt uh, that you can spend either on a t-shirt or in a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. That's another point of insanity we can discuss how cheap fashion has gotten. Uh, but when I feel more dispirited, I say to myself, here's the crucial difference. When we were talking about smoking mm-hmm. and fast food, we are talking about people have their self-interest at heart. Oh, this is bad for me. You Mm -hmm. know, if I smoke, it's bad for me. If I eat fast food, it's bad for me. But we can't apply the same narrative to ethical production of clothes. Like, it's not your children who are making the clothes for, you know, 25 Mm -hmm. cents an hour. It's some... Brown children in a faraway land that no one talks about. Okay, maybe you've seen it on TV. You felt guilty about it for five minutes and then you forgot it mm-hmm. about it the next day and you went to H&M and bought, you know, 15 T-shirts for a price of like a weekly MetroCard. Yeah. You know, uh, that was, that's what's dispiriting to me. Yeah, I think that one of the big differences between um, consumer activism today and the tobacco industry, that's such a great example because that wasn't just about changing, um, behavior. I mean, a big part of it was that, but it was also about, um, regulating the tobacco industry. So, um, that, that is what's missing in the conversation about ethical fashion. I don't think it's that people don't care. I think that, millions of people around the world care. Um, 
and care deeply about reforming the fashion industry, but we don't have a strategy. You know, we don't, we so rarely talk about, um, you know, breaking up the big, the luxury conglomerates or decentralizing power in the fashion industry. Have fashion brands gotten too big? Um, Can you hold a CEO of a company accountable for slavery in the supply chain? Like we are missing the big political strategy piece of this. We think all of this is supposed to fall on the shoulders of us as consumers. And my work has perpetuated that narrative. You know, like when I look back at overdressed and definitely the conscious closet, it's like all of this, it kind of like, I feel like really reached its peak with the omnivores dilemma that that kind of mm-hmm. era of ethical consumerism is so built around educating the consumer in order for them to make a more righteous choice. Yeah. And I think that we've just proven that does not work. It's not, it does not change anything. Um, and I would argue that we haven't reformed the food industry either at all. Yeah. All we've done is created like a separate market for ethical consumers, but like Amazon owns whole foods is probably the best example of that. McDonald's is a little bit healthier for, um, consumers, but not for producers, like people who manufacture for McDonald's, like raise chickens for McDonald's, like that, that industry has just gotten worse. And I mean, we saw with the meatpacking industry during the pandemic, the way that Mm -hmm. people are treated who work for the fast food industry, it's still really bad. So I, I really think that we need to, um, we need to have like a long, hard look at how we, how we make change and come up with with better better ways of going about it. I do find it I do wonder if why we don't have political action is for that reason is that a lot of consumers who have only self-interest in mind and you know let's face it it's 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 not only on consumers you know Mm -hmm. because consumers are like overworked overstressed they you know they just want to come home and like go mm-hmm. shopping and like have right. some entertainment and you yeah. know shopping's become a form of entertainment and you know and and here's the most pernicious thing i think about fast fashion and we can discuss this because i think it's such an interesting topic uh to me the most pernicious thing is not even the amount of shit they pump out mm-hmm. into the economy and the amount of waste they create uh you know, and, and of course the exploitation that goes with it. But one of the fundamental things no one seems to be talking about is how they have conditioned the consumer that clothes have to be incredibly cheap and that clothes that are not incredibly cheap are unaffordable. Mm -hmm. So to me, affordability is partly a, Partly a mental construct. Yeah, Yeah, you know, it's partly it's obviously function of your income. You know, you get a certain Mm -hmm. amount of money every month in salary and you all allocate it to different things. But part of it is it's, uh, you know, it's a construct. It's like I've seen people walk into a store like 
hold a hundred dollar t-shirt and shudder <laughs> where i'm like brah you're gonna go to a bar and spend that much in beer <laughs> like i know that <laughs> you, you know Bruh. what i mean <laughs> so i think that is a very insidious pernicious thing yeah yeah that's such a good point i feel like you and i have talked about that a lot over over the years like I, and this goes back to where I think the solution has to be to dismantle these companies because as long as they exist, other fashion companies are, are competing against that price point. Do you know what I mean? Like it's artificially low. And if you're an ethical or sustainable brand, you're competing against a company that's selling things for a dollar sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, by lowering the price of fashion, they also changed people's expectations about the pace of fashion. Because what what most consumers today would probably tell you is, I don't want to buy the $100 t-shirt because it's going to go out of style. And I want to be able to... Now there's this like a greater expectation to keep up with fashion. And fashion is moving much faster too. Um so, yeah. So it's like put us on this treadmill of, of consumerism. Yeah, absolutely. I, I talk about this. Remember, I interviewed you for this article I wrote for Business of Fashion called Buy, Don't Rent. And it yeah. was about rental yeah. services. God, I love that piece. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you. And, <laughs> and I feel like that's only adding to this another mm-hmm. mentality we've developed, as you point out, like, right. why don't we need 14 outfits a week? Mm hmm. You know, like how how did we get to this? And I mean, we know how we got to this mm-hmm. here uh, because we can buy so much closeness. But also, it's it, it's the mentality that it's a pressure. It's peer pressure. Mm-hmm. It's the pressure people put on themselves and on those around them. And of course, it's perpetuated by fashion media as well, mm-hmm. where like. Are you really gonna like? Are you gonna commit social suicide if you wear like the same dress like twice in a week? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think the pandemic maybe slowed some of that down for the time being. Um, But yeah, the rental, the rental, the rental question is a good one because um, if you if you really look at um, corporate sharing economy models, whether Uber, Airbnb, or Rent the Runway, um, the original idea was that we are sharing instead of owning, so it's going to bring down overall consumption, but the opposite is what's happened. <laughs> it's like with yeah, Uber, exactly. it, it, um, it people fewer people use public transportation and more people use the car because it's uh, it's cheap. And the, and the same thing with Airbnb, it's like led to development, um, gentrification and people traveling more in renting fashion. I think what I saw happening with it is my friends who would have normally bought like a sensible work wardrobe. They no longer were doing that. They were just like, I'm just going to rent for work. Um, and 
when I started writing about renting, I was assuming that it was greener than fast fashion, but because there's not, there's no life cycle assessment of it yet, like right. of the rent the runway model. So when I started researching it, I was like, there's not really any proof that this is more sustainable. And to your yeah. point, it's, it is also changing consumer habits. Yeah, absolutely. It's just speeding everything up instead of slowing it down. Yeah. And, you know, the argument I make in that article, well, as you know, and you're the one I think who told me that, first of all, they have to ship the stuff both ways. Yeah. Right. Then they dry clean it. After everywhere. After everywhere. Yeah. Even if you haven't worn it, they yeah. still have to dry clean it. Mm-hmm. And now with COVID, God knows what, they have to put it like in a nuclear reactor or something. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and yeah, to me, and, and they, and, and it's, to me, it's another example of greenwashing because if you look at the narrative of rent the runway, mm-hmm. they, they, they build this binary narrative. It's either fast fashion or us. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, what about the everything in between? Mm-hmm. You know, what if I buy like a really nice pair of leather shoes and I keep it for five years? Like, why aren't you writing about that? Yeah. And I know why you're not writing about that. It's not good for your business model. It doesn't fit into your greenwashing narrative. Well, I think that that's why it would be really interesting for someone to attempt to do a life cycle analysis comparing rent the runway with a fast fashion order of clothing and like or season of clothing. Um, this is like one of those areas where we just really need more research. Cause when I was writing about rentals for L magazine, one of the researchers I spoke to was like, said he was going to look into it, especially the shipping piece of it. Yeah. Um, and trying to like calculate the, um, Uh, dry cleaning in there. But here's what would be really difficult to figure out unless the company was open about it. Rent the Runway is, to my knowledge, changing the way that designers manufacture clothing as well. So they're going to designers and in some cases asking them to make um, clothing that can withstand being dry cleaned. Um, Mm -hmm. which usually means like switching from silk to a synthetic. Right. Um, so that's one, that's one thing that I'm, I'm super curious about, like how those changes impact the environmental impact. And also I know that if something does not rent well, it, it's, you know, it's donated or or thrown away, or, or I don't think it's thrown away, but it would be donated, and then the, the other piece of it, and this is like harder for me to wrap my mind around, but you're not necessarily extending the life of a piece of clothing just because it's in a rental program. You're just churning it through users. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a great point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, it doesn't last longer. Uh, you know, on the country, maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It sort of reminded me how they make special furniture for hotels because it's used much more. Oh, I didn't know that. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Like the mattresses for hotels, like all the furniture <laughs> really rugged. is like especially reinforced because of the use. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, it's not yours, right? Like mm-hmm. why, why would you use it with care? 
Yeah. And, you know, that's another thing that I addressed. And now we're getting into the emotional aspect, but I think uh, of of, uh, things, but I think it's valid to explore that. And when I say is that, you know, if you buy something, something that you really love, and you paid a lot of money for it, you're just going to, you going to hold on to it. You're going to develop a relationship with that piece of clothes. And maybe it sounds facile, but to me, it's not. I think it's kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, like we all have like mementos. We, you know, we are attracted to things like heirlooms and stuff like th- yeah. things do have meaning. Mm-hmm. And like rental things have no meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, and to me, and okay, fully understanding that it may sound preposterous to a lot of people, but I'll say it anyway. If you buy a coat for a thousand dollars, which you know is a lot of money uh, for a lot of people, mm-hmm. myself included, you're just gonna look at that thing in a different light. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you. You're not gonna see it with a sort of throwaway, disposable mentality. Mm-hmm that you know like try tossing out a thousand dollar coat like see what happens (laughs) you'll have a heart attack and you know and it doesn't have to be a thousand dollar coat you know what i mean it could could be just something that has a certain meaning you know maybe you bought it with your first paycheck from your first big job yeah or maybe like you can relate to the maker of the garment there is something to be said about it, I think. Yeah, I think that that's where proponents of the sharing economy are maybe wrong about some aspects of it. I, I don't think that what we're going to see is a, a more careful use of resources. It seems like it's actually kind of part of the opposite where it's just, we're like going through this phase of total dematerialization. Like nobody wants to own anything. Nobody like values physical possessions, um, which can make it, make it even harder to have conversations with people about how to, what it means to shop responsibly. Mm-hmm. If you don't actually own, own the thing. Um, yeah. And I, I will say about renting, there are examples of it that are really beautiful. Like I think peer to peer and independently owned renting companies do a great job because what they're doing is loaning you a dress for a special occasion, which that Mm -hmm. was, that was the idea to begin with. It wasn't stop owning your clothes so you can wear as much as you want whenever you want. The idea was why would you buy a dress to wear to a friend's wedding? That that's the kind of thing that you should right. borrow. Yeah, 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 and that may, makes more sense. I mm-hmm. mean, historically, you know, you rented a tuxedo or a right. dress and whatnot. That that does make more sense. Uh, but where it has gotten to, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's greenwashing, and, and that's that's leave the it, problem. It's like it's, leave it to American capitalism to just come up with the most extreme version of like clothing rental that you can possibly imagine. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's that, <laughs> and that's where we at. It's really sort of, it's really the late capitalist system. That's all about removing friction between mm-hmm. you exchanging money mm-hmm. for something else. And what, and what I mean by like, 
owning a thousand dollar code is that there is friction. There is friction. Yeah. You know, and now like capital system is all about removing that friction. Yeah. And 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 that is a huge problem that that uh, contributes to us basically ruining the planet. What do you think of ThreadUp? I I don't know the business model too well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, they're selling used clothes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm all up for buying secondhand. Mm-hmm. I do it. I I did it this year. I do it like every year. I know a lot of people who buy secondhand, and that's another beautiful thing. And I'm gonna get on my horse, high horse, and defend uh, designer fashion now. Yeah. Uh, or, or let's say uh, luxury fashion, mm-hmm. which is not its own problems. Without its problems, we should bust some of those myths as well. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing to me is that if you buy a quality garment uh, and you couple of years passes by, you no longer feel it's you saying the most basic thing. You can resell it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you get some of the money back that you spent. Right. And it goes to someone else. And I and, and there's a certain beauty in it that mm-hmm. I find. You know, and, and I do these archival sales um sometimes. Uh and they're wonderful. Like people come in and we have a beer and we chat and maybe someone buys, someone doesn't buy. But there's this kind of a community we've created. It's small. But it's cool, and I kind of want to expand it. Where like last time, there were like three people who brought their clothes. Yeah, and I'm thinking like, well, COVID like derailed the whole thing, of course. But then I thought like, well, next time maybe there will be ten people who bring, you know, and 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 we're all aesthetically connected, and a lot of the customers are young kids like who don't have a lot of money, Mm. you know, but here they can get something for like thirty percent of the original price. Or whatnot, and to me, there's there's a certain beauty. In it. It, it, it's more human. It doesn't feel mere like a mere transaction. Yeah, you know. Uh, so I'm all for secondhand market. Yeah. What yeah. What about you? Yeah, I I I love everyone I know who works at ThreadUp. Like they all come from small thrift stores, and they ended up working for this big company. And I think that ThreadUp has done a lot of work to destigmatize secondhand shopping, um, which is really important. Um, I get asked a lot about them. Like if I think that they're going to put independent thrift stores out of business, or if they're kind of turning secondhand into something more of a fast fashion model where the idea is like you can, again, it it would, they're sort of in the same space as rent the runway in some ways. And this is something their CEO said to me because it's, they want you to be able to rotate your closet. Mm -hmm. So you buy stuff secondhand, you wear it for the season, you sell it back and you buy more stuff, but it's just doing that in a much more like low impact way, but it's still the same. The concept is like the churn. Yeah. I I understand, but I suppose at least here, they're not buying something new. Yeah. 
but yeah. it's already been produced. So instead of buying something new, they're buying something that's already been made. So there's a, there's a mitigating factor there. And um, I think too, to your point, like people, one of the beautiful things about secondhand fashion is in expanding access to secondhand fashion. This is the same case with the real, real is people who can't afford to buy designer or luxury, like really good quality clothes have access. I mean, that's why I have a nice wardrobe. Like I don't think I've ever bought a single piece of luxury fashion new, and I probably will never in my life be able to afford to. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it is a great way the, it is a great way to 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 get into it and yeah. then pass it along to someone else. Right. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, what's the oldest thing you have in your closet? Like, I have stuff that's like 20 years old, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but I, it's not because it's nice. It's just because I don't want to let it go. Like, I have a pair of jean shorts, a pair of Levi's from high school. So they're older than 20 years. Um but I mean, you know, you know my story. I didn't start buying nice stuff until after I wrote Overdressed. So. Yeah. Uh, tell us the story because it's <laughs> okay. such a great story, and I did, and I didn't want to recount it, and it's a great segue. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was a well, fast fashion junkie. Not just fast fashion; like I was really into buying the cheapest thing I could find. It was a sport for me. Um, like I would go into old Navy and shop the clearance rack. And it wasn't because I couldn't afford better. It was because I didn't think that clothing was something I thought I was being clever. I didn't think clothing was something you should ever invest real money in. It's not, it's frivolous. It's silly. And so it just became kind of, um, a game, to buy really cheap stuff. And I accumulated over 350 items of clothing, which I know a lot of people have way more than that now, but it was shocking. And I was like, okay, I want to know what the impact of me doing this is because it's, it had just gotten so out of control. And, um, the further I went into studying the fashion industry and researching the fashion industry, the more, I started to care about clothes and what kinds of clothes I buy and what kinds of materials I put on my body and how my clothes fit. So it's like that emotional connection you were talking about earlier was formed like Mm -hmm. by knowing more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading your, uh, the introduction to overdressed, how he bought seven pairs of $7 (laughs) espadrilles at Kmart (laughs) And like, yeah, I mean, it was funny, but it was also dispiriting because I thought, and we didn't know each other back then. It wasn't, yeah. I think we met because I think you reached out to me after my article in Business of Fashion about the H&M collab with, yeah. with Margiela. And I, so I didn't know you, but I had your book and I read it and I thought, well, if this clearly in intelligent woman you know who wrote this book (laughs) has written for the atlantic was doing that like what hope do the rest of us have Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like that to me was the dispiriting thing and again to go back to the sort of the drug of low prices like yeah how much can we expect from an average person who is like overworked overstressed Mm -hmm. Overdressed. <laughs> Overdressed. You know, 
the that they don't want to think about this stuff. And you're absolutely right. It has to fall on the politicians at some point. It has to fall on us as journalists, uh, you know, to convince them. But here's the problem I run into, and I don't know if you've run into the same thing. Again, under the capitalist system, like if you want to write about sustainable fashion in terms of selling, green light, you can write anywhere you want. As soon as I come to someone and say like, uh, here's a very simple idea, and I stand by that idea, uh, don't buy. Buy less, mm-hmm. hold on to it. It doesn't matter if it's polyester or leather or whatnot. I have jackets from polyester that are 10 years old that I haven't washed once. Right. That seems pretty sustainable to me. Yeah. Right? As soon as I start talking about like not buying, no one wants to hear it. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. no, like, you know, like no company is going to like commission an article from you and a lot of publications won't either where you say like, just don't buy, buy less. But what you're talking about is like that problem goes do- so deep. Um, I, I've been calling it the sustainable fashion industrial complex because brands fund Jesus um, <laughs> uh, brands fund um, almost every conversation that happens in fashion they they pay for the advertising on uh, all of the blogs that we write for like I'm writing an article for Patagonia about greenwashing right so what that does is it really limits the space for honest um, debate. I mean, you can put it, you know, on your Patreon or you can self-publish that kind of material. But in general, the fashion press doesn't have any interest in yeah. that kind of story. What they want to know is about some startup that is recycling T-shirts or, yeah. um, you know, Max Mara putting out a recycled lining in their camel hair coat or whatever. Like that, that's what they want to write about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which again, in the end of the day, like, uh, what do we buy to feel good about ourselves? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's sad because the conversations that could be having and the, and the conversations that you are forging in the fashion industry are so much more interesting than the ones, uh, that happen in the mainstream fashion press, like about our emotional and psychological relationship to clothes. It's so, it's so interesting. Yeah, but yeah, uh, thank you, Elizabeth. I just like, I'm so sad, like no one really wants to talk about it. And that article, you know, where I talk about it um, mm-hmm. for everyone, it's called Buy, Don't Rent, and I'll put it up on our Instagram. It's great. It was on Business of Fashion. I got actually a lot of response, you know, people were writing me out of the blue. And yeah. I thought like, yeah, why, why, why don't we talk about this more? I mean, keep you, I your writing has always inspired me and it's like, it's always just like a good bullshit meter. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, are we having the right conversations? And then I'll see what you're up to. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I think I have something next week. That's going to again, like blow a hole through the, (laughs) through the bottom of the boat. Um, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. More, more on that next week. Um, (laughs) Uh, but 
<laughs> yeah, what what are some other myths that 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 you would like to address? Um, I I mean I'm working on this. I'm working on a story about um, ethical consumerism, and we've talked about it. But this is this is the thing that we have to I think really um, get beyond, and I. I would like to talk a little bit about the pay up campaign, if I may, because I think that it's an example of what consumer activism looks like that has nothing to do with voting with your dollar. So when, for those who are not familiar, when the pandemic hit, almost every major brand and retailer canceled orders for clothing that was already sewn in their garment factories. And, um, the cancellations were worth $40 billion globally. So it was going to devastate um, all of the garment workers because factories, they don't, they couldn't pay their workers. Like they, they were being robbed of millions of dollars each factory. Um, So the pay up campaign launched, it was just a handful of labor activists in the beginning, consumer activists. And the campaign was really simple. It was like using social media, to call out companies until they agree to pay for their orders. And um, we have gotten over $20 billion promised back to factories. That's um, incredible. Yeah. And, uh, and we're about to launch a long-term campaign for change. Like, I don't think that some of the things that we want to see in the fashion industry are out of reach. Um, Living wages, for example, I don't think that that that's not rocket science. Um, That's just something that should happen. Um, But it's not going to happen if we keep telling people that the main thing you can do is to not buy fast fashion. Right. You know, if someone has two minutes a day to work on this issue, get on a brand's Instagram and say, pay living wages now. Yeah. Yeah. I read the other, I think it was a couple of months ago that H&M and Calvin Klein are now investing in uh, Ethiopia yeah. where <clears throat> some garment workers get make like $26 a month, Yep, which is lower than the living wage in Ethiopia. The whole Ethiopia thing is really twisted because they're kind of positioning it like we're going to build this ethical industry from scratch, from the ground up. Um, But yeah, the wages are really low. And Ethiopia, there were cancellations there too. Brands are just like, they're full of it. You know, they will only do the right thing if one, we constantly hold their feet to the fire. Um, They are very, very sensitive to reputational risk. So if you call them out, they change, they, they usually change, like, especially mm-hmm. if it has anything to do with like sweatshops, um, right. or we can change our laws and hold them legally responsible for what happens in their supply chain, which is what I think yeah. that we all should be working towards. Yeah. But that's not that easy to do, right? Because say like Nike comes to their Vietnamese mm-hmm. supplier and they give them a quote and they give them the tour of the factories and they're all nice and clean and people Mm -hmm. are you know get lunch breaks and everything nike people leave and they outsource huge parts of production to 
other factories and those are the sweatshops, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's kind of like money laundering a little bit. Yeah. And, if- and then you find out like Rana Plaza collapses and H&M was like, and people yeah. are like, well, there are your tags in that factory. And they're like, well, we don't know anything about it. We did not contract with that factory. But this is such an easy thing to solve because if you, in this, the, there's already a bill that's was being considered in California and got pushed to next year for consideration. And then there's a, law, a similar law in Europe where if you hold corporations accountable for human rights violations in their supply chain. That's all it has to say. You will be amazed. I think we will be amazed at what brands <laughs> How quickly are able. it will turn around. <laughs> like yeah. right now, it's so ridiculous that we're like, how could they ever know that something is subcontracted? Like you're talking about the most powerful companies on the planet. Right. Like they, they will figure out a way. Yeah. And and um, I think that that kind of thing would also put pressure on the factories to not subcontract mm-hmm. to because yeah. brands would like always be on them about it. Yeah. Another myth I want to bust that because I don't want to seem like I am here on my uh, high horse and saying designer fashion is the only way out <laughs> and everyone has to like plow towns of money into clothes <laughs> uh you know it's, it's it's a complicated subject uh but the traditional defense used to be and i'll tell you this a little aside is becoming increasingly harder and harder to defend the luxury slash designer fashion space because it's falling prey to absolutely same dynamics that's fast fashion mm-hmm and yeah, the tr- my traditional defense was that well, hey, at least you buy something expensive and it says made in Italy on it, and you know it's not made in the sweatshop and something right. got a living wage. And two things are happening and has have been happening for years. One, Italy passed the law, which I think I don't know if they backtracked on it. That only ten percent of a garment has to be made in Italy. To be able for you for you to be able to slap on the made in Italy label, so you can have ninety percent of the labor done in China, right. ship o- ship it over to Italy, put on some finishing touches, boom, made in Italy, your conscience is clear. Mm-hmm. This is the number one thing. Number two thing, as we've discovered, and there's been two great articles on it one in the New Yorker and one in the New York Times over the past couple of years, that now actually, you know, there are Chinese sweatshops that are being set up in Italy. Mm -hmm. And they make bags for brands like Gucci. Right. So there goes your sustainability claim, you know, Mr. Pinot caring. (laughs) Like, like what do you say to that? Yeah, yeah. In um, the Prado district of Italy, it's almost all Chinese-owned factories, and I mean, some of them are reputably run, but there are there are sweatshops in Italy. We know that now. We know that. Um, to your point, um, made in Italy can just be final assembly. Um, it, but then um, a lot of uh, luxury brands are very open about out. I mean, producing more of their mass market lower, whatever, more affordable lines in, in China. Um, my, 
my uh, response to that is that luxury is suffering from the same problems as the fast fashion industry because um, I think it's a problem of market consolidation and corporate abuse. Like LVMH and carrying our... Uh, LVMH is the biggest fashion yeah. retailer in yeah. the world. Yeah, they wait. They make way, 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 way more money than the fast fashion chains. Um, yeah. They are more powerful than God. Like, <laughs> and I don't think that. I think one thing that was interesting about the pandemic is people were talking about wanting to change a bunch of stuff in fashion, but no one was like, you know, what would really make sense is if we broke up the luxury conglomerate. So everybody mm-hmm. was like independent again. Cause doesn't, yeah. I mean, I would imagine if you work for one of these companies, what you want to be d- making is like beautiful clothes and it just, yeah. fashion continues to become about other things than that. It's about money. It yeah. just ends up being about money. Yeah, no, I agree that that that's unfortunately that's where we are. And uh, but you know, smaller designers still exist and they still mm-hmm. do great work. And uh, I'm sure we will, both of us have been to. I have certainly been to some shops where you can see the thing made from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain, again, at the risk of sounding sentimental, there is a, there is a beauty in that. Mm-hmm. And once you see that, you do have a connection. One of the things we do at Stalls, I guess, we have these like little photo essays about work process mm-hmm. you know, and about production methods. And you can see like, here's your pair of boots that has been made from start to finish in the same factory by the guy whose grandfather was doing the same thing a hundred yeah. years ago. And there is something lovely in that. And we've just, as a culture, we've just lost that. We've just lost that so much. And we are yeah. so far away from dress habits, from historical dress habits, mm-hmm. you know, and, and which is, which is another thing to forget, like even 50 years ago, people didn't buy so much clothes. Uh, Dries Van Noten told me like one of the most beautiful things, his grandfather was uh, what they called returnier. Uh, I'm sure I mispronounced it, but he was a specific type of a tailor to whom you, you took your suit, he would take it apart Turn it inside out, inside out, because if when one side was worn out, you would take the suit to him, <laughs> you would turn it inside out and put it back together. So you'd have a brand new suit. Wow. Like, yeah. Okay. We didn't have to go that far. Fine. You know, that's like extra. But like, I see, you know, shoe repair people like going out of business left and right because no one wears leather shoes anymore because mm-hmm. everyone wears sneakers. And guess what? You can't resell sneakers, you know, so they wear them, throw them out. Like I have leather shoes that are like 12 years old, 10 mm-hmm. years old, seven years old. And I've repaired the crap out of them and they still look as new. And I, I wish, I just wish we would do more of that. I mean, I think that it's important to, you're, you're sort of serving as like an archivist for 
that culture that used to exist before fast fashion and fast luxury. And we know that the fashion system as it exists today can't exist forever. So I think that we're playing a really important role by keeping remnants of that culture going because we are going to need it. In yeah, the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so too. And we're going to need it sorely. And you know, here it's driven by immigrants. You, yeah. You, you know, you're not really gonna find like an American uh, like reselling shoes because we've and and I'm not saying it's their fault. Right. You know, and I'm but we we are losing these skills. Right. Very very rapidly, like. You know, like my my shoemaker in the neighborhood and my shoemaker in Manhattan, like they're both like Jews from the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know? Like I'm like, oh, my people everywhere, you know. Uh, but these, uh, you know, like uh, every like, when I go to a tailor, you know, they're, they're either Korean, like another tailor I go to is Greek. You know, mm-hmm. like it's like it's hard to find someone who is not an immigrant who still possesses those skills. Yeah. Um, I think that the slow fashion community is doing a little bit, pulling their weight and keeping some of that going. I I mean, just speaking personally, like I, I get my shoes resold. Um, and I would not, if, if I wasn't in this like movement, I would have never, never known or thought to do it because it does yeah. seem sort of old fashioned that's another thing isn't it the kind and that's where i feel like our uh responsibility is to come in and like tell people like Mm -hmm. no you can you you can do that like yeah if you put a hole in your jeans like it's fine like you can repair Mm -hmm. your clothes you know you can repair your shoes it's fine and also one thing we didn't talk about, of course, is the huge part of sustainability is the after afterlife. You know mm-hmm. what happens after the purchase, right? And the care, like how often do you wash mm-hmm. your clothes? Like how often do you dry clean them? Mm-hmm. And you know we have this obsession in America with cleanliness that sometimes goes overboard. You know, mm-hmm. like people used to not wash their jeans and actually you're not so kind of not supposed to wash your jeans. Like yeah. that's the point of denim. That's why it's such a universal fabric. Yeah. And there are studies that show that Americans uh, think that they're going to stink if they don't wash their clothes after every wear. Like they've been conditioned to be terrified about what's going to happen if they skip. And I, I wash my clothes as little as often. I'll be the first to admit that because I don't want to mess them up. And you learn very quickly, unless you're like going running in them that nothing bad happens if you don't wash them. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like I even, you know, I, I never, wash my outerwear yeah i'll take it to dry cleaning once a year you know after the season is right to get the funk out of it yeah yeah i don't i don't wash my denim like even my t-shirts like a lot of them i will just air out Mm. and this is what people can do you can just like air stuff like air is a great disinfectant Mm -hmm. people don't know i think laundry um laundry too there's kind of like a fast laundry culture now where, you know, like with, um, laundry detergent pods, that's become another thing that people don't think about and they want to do as quickly and as often as possible. 
Um, so like you've got these high powered stain removers and your laundry pod and you just throw your clothes in this machine and you just dump the chemicals in it and walk away and come back 30 minutes later. Um, and your clothes are clean. Um, that has an incredibly high environmental impact, especially like tumble dryers and it's unnecessary, you know, it's something that we're just conditioned to think that is like hygienic Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> did we uh, solve, fo- did we solve the world's problems? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, th- I think we're good. So yes, okay, final good. solutions. Mine, uh, super easy people. You don't have to do a lot of effort to do this because I know we're all overworked and we're all alienated and we all just want to plug a hole in our soul with <laughs> stuff mm-hmm. um buy less just really buy less uh buy quality hold on to it repair it and i think you'll be rewarded what's your solution join the pay up campaign for change and let's rein in corporate power so we can have space in our world and our culture for the slow fashion world that I think we all deep down want to see. Agreed. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. It was uh, great (laughs) to have you. Yeah. I always enjoy talking to you. So thank you for having me on. Likewise. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Thank you for listening.